Hello and welcome to season four of Making Design Circular with Katie Trugidden, in which I'm exploring what it takes to cultivate a creative practice in which you, your business and the planet all get to thrive. I'll be diving deep into the nuances, complexities and mindset shifts that we all need to embrace to bring about a just transition to a more circular economy. How many people actually fulfill their own moral compass right so <laughs> very few even people who are very dedicated you know we're not perfect beings mm. and therefore there's something about what will you always want to do I'm not saying that if everyone suddenly untapped their playfulness then climate change is going to disappear into a puff of smoke but I think there is just something about reframing the way we engage with things there is just something about finding a combination of the things that you love doing, the things that you're good at doing and the things that the world needs some mm. support on. You know, it's not a magic silver bullet, but I think there's something about understanding your sense of playfulness. You are highly likely to be more engaged. And when you are engaged, you're likely to be a better version of yourself. Hello and welcome to this episode of Making Design Circular with Katie Trigidden. If you've been listening for a while, you will know that we are exploring the methodology that underpins everything I teach in the Making Design Circular membership and across all the short courses. And that methodology has always included play. But it's taken me a little while to work out exactly what it means, exactly how it's relevant to environmentalism. Now, I know, as I'm sure you do, that playfulness, curiosity and experimentation are a really important part of the creative process. We know, and a lot of my work is around the idea, that guilt and duty and all those kind of heavy feelings that often come with environmentalism are not the soil in which creativity thrives. So I knew that part of my methodology needed to be about that sense of playfulness, curiosity and experimentation, but I couldn't quite link it to environmentalism until I came across Lucy Hawthorne and her organisation Climate Play and the jigsaw pieces just came together and so I had to get her on the podcast to talk to you. So Lucy talked about the fact that you can't fear and force people into environmental action but instead you need to make it light, safe and fun. And I think this is so exciting because the environmental crisis is hugely serious but that doesn't necessarily mean that a serious approach is going to lead us to the answers. Enjoy this episode. And as always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear. Lucy, perhaps you could start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how Climate Play came to be. Yeah, sure. So I'm Lucy uh, Hawthorne and I'm the founder of uh, Climate Play, which is a climate change learning and development organisation that helps unlock climate action through play, specifically with adults, which involves um, a lot of Lego. And the origin of that is that my, my background is actually as uh, an environmental campaigner. So I worked in NGOs and charities for many, many years and spent a lot of time uh, trying to influence public policy and, and politicians. And uh, I really started thinking 
quite deeply about how effectively we were really truly moving people's hearts and minds and whether we were just playing games um, in politics and a, a bit of a mix of both and that climate play is really the the legacy of many years of really thinking about climate psychology and and humans and how we change things and so uh, climate play is in essence trying to find different ways of really tapping into people's motivations and really trying to create spaces where people can engage in subjects that they don't really want to and mm. that feels very different to a very hard-hitting strategic approach that I've spent many years um many years doing so yes. that's a bit about the origin of it amazing and it's interesting isn't it there's this kind of the ways we feel things ought to be done versus the way that is actually most effective which we'll come back to but this might sound like a silly question yeah. but before we move on I'd love you to define the word play what is it uh, not at all silly so <laughs> the first thing I would say is that play is a state of mind while people think of it only as an activity it is both of those things so okay. there's a distinction between play as an activity i.e the things that we do and so the methods that i use for example in my in my work um but it, it really truly is a state of mind it's an emotional state so um play is is really um there's a nice definition by a guy called stuart brown who i'm sure we might mention later who's a a very cool play theorist and he says that play is purposeless all-consuming and fun so to be honest play is whatever you want it to be and so it's it's unique entirely unique to each person and how we each play is a really clear expression of our own individuality and I think that's what's really important when you're trying to engage people on any issue but climate in particular is that there's something about how you are uniquely tapping into that individual person rather than overlaying motivations on top of them. Um, and so we often feel, you know, our fullest selves, our most alive when we're playing, but it's also plays fundamentally also how we learn. So mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, if you think back to being kids, you know, if anyone's got toddlers, the classic thing of the kids dropping their dropping their spoon repeatedly on the floor and finding it really amusing when their parents keep trying to pick it up, all of these really small um, instances, they're play and it's all about how we learn. So it's fundamentally part of how um, we develop neuroplasticity um, in our brains. And so it's it's inherently kind of generative and creative. And why wouldn't we want to be generative and creative when we're trying to deal with what is a bit of a problem <laughs> in the context yeah. of change? <laughs> And I, I think the climate crisis seems like such an important, serious, urgent, weighty topic. On the surface of it, it feels like play has got no place in amongst all of that. But from what you're saying, it's actually quite an important way into some of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's it, it is countercultural in some ways, you know, so mm. the suggesting joy and experimentation in a time of existential crisis might not quite sit so well with everybody and and some people definitely do push back but I think um I'm a I'm an inherent pragmatist really I'm an optimistic pragmatist but so there's something about the function of play and as I've just said play is about how we learn it's about how we iterate it's about how you create spaces for invention uh, for joy 
And also fundamentally, everybody's better at whatever it is they're doing if they're in a good frame of mind. Mm. And why should climate change or any other serious issue be any different? Um, And so there's something about the mind frame or the mindset that play being playful puts you in and how that it has a knock-on effect in all other ways so if you're if you're being playful you're freer you're more connected you're um you're more creative um you're more willing to take risks you're more experimental you're perhaps more resilient why wouldn't we want these attributes when we're trying to deal with huge problems you talk about making engaging with environmentalism safe, light and fun. And I love those three words. And it, it's mm. often struck me that feeling safe is a sort of precursor to, to being playful because playful can being playful can feel a little vulnerable. So tell me about those three words, why they're important and how playfulness can help us get to them. That is a lovely question. Safety is massively important because tell me who feels safe talking about climate change and tell me how many (laughs) proportion of adults feel safe being playful, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these binaries around, particularly as adults in in capitalist societies, particularly, you know, these notions that you become an adult and you start working, you stop playing, and you become an adult and you become productive and you become professional and you become serious. Mm. Um, And so there's something about how do we challenge those binaries? And I'm a facilitator by by trade and so psychological safety is everything for us so in order for people to learn effectively and fully we have to make it safe for them and that relates to kind of creativity as well and I think when you're thinking about safety in the context of climate change or sustainability or other issues that are difficult for people to hold is one of the huge huge problems we have is that it's very difficult for people to talk about it because people are afraid and therefore not safe um, because they're afraid of judgment, they're afraid of failure, they're afraid of change. And these are all really superhuman emotions. So that's the emphasis on on safety. And I Mm -hmm. think that is something that needs significantly more attention in the climate change space, because whether we think the shoulds are irrelevant, we need to focus on what is working. And so are people being engaged enough? No, why not? And then we need to work on that. So that real human communication piece is is hugely important. And the light and fun side of it. So I suppose it's, you know, following on from things that I've already said, really, is that there is a benefit to having a little bit of levity. Um, And there's a nice quote by... uh, well, there's a there's a piece of writing by uh, John Paul Lederach, who's a, a really interesting philosopher, um, and he says there's no scientific evidence that serious need seriousness leads to greater growth, maturity, or insight into the human condition than playfulness. Interesting. It's just that we've got a norm of serious seriousness, and actually, part of what I really like about my work is that it is challenging people to say we can achieve the same serious outcomes. Mm. but we have choice in the way we do it Mm. and so ultimately if things are a bit lighter and a bit more fun people will be kind of naturally drawn to it rather than only feeling like they should yes Um, and even in my experience of working as a campaigner for for many years you know I found 
I find the topic very heavy. I find it very draining. Mm. And that because I'm able to bring lightness myself in my work, it's what helps keep me engaged in a subject that otherwise might make me run to the hills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the average, for the average person, um, we can't expect that everybody is willing to uh willing to be so heavy. Yeah, this is this is so interesting because I've I've put together a, a framework that underpins making design circular, which is the organization I run. And I had play in there. Yes. Because I know that play is incredibly important to creativity, right? And my audience are designers and craftspeople and artists and makers. And so I knew play should be in yes. there, but I couldn't work out until ah. I met you <laughs> what it had to do with <laughs> environmentalism, because I think I was in that same space of it yeah. such serious outcomes that surely we have to approach it with gravitas and, and seriousness. But I love that idea that you can have playful inputs and still serious yes. outputs. I think that's a really important little shift um you also mentioned this idea of kind of keeping people engaged without them burning out and yes. I would love you to talk a little bit about the difference between in intrinsic and extrinsic motivation which you touched on right at the beginning how do we yeah. kind of use those two different levers and how do they differ in terms of how engaged people get and stay with the issues yeah so it is as you said it's it's all about how you can get people involved keep them involved and hopefully increase their involvement right and again climate change isn't any different to any other issue you know we we need to look at this as a human problem and be applying just general human psychology but just to this particular context mm -hmm. but i suppose in you know and intrinsic in the simplest sense intrinsic motivations are things that kind of come organically from you well, this is the way that I think about it. And I'm I'm sure people with more psychological background to me might reframe this, but <laughs> intrinsic motivations are things that kind of rawly come from you. They are things that are who you are um, kind of instinctively. So the way that we play individually is, is a key part of our fundamental character. Okay. So I'm quite nerdy. I'm quite mischievous. I'm a little bit cheeky. You know, uh, actually, so that is very distinctive to my personality. And I've always been like that. So that mm. is an intrinsic part of who I am. Extrinsic stuff in the context of climate, I guess, is more things like social values and norms that uh, we absorb or are applied onto us that can still stimulate um, behavior. So, for example, things like status or fear um, moral pressure for good or for bad, you know, uh, family cultures, all of those kind of things are external motivators. And there's a basic idea that if you can tap into people's intrinsic motivators, it's slightly truer for them. And so uh, in the context of, of my work, a lot of what I talk about is trying to find ways to help people to tap into their unique playfulness because they are more likely to stay involved. Mm. And for me, um, very, very fortunately for me, I've been, <laughs> been able to carve this highly niche career, um, which is extremely playful for me because I'm very curious. I like making stuff up. Um, you know, I like talking to people. I like exploring ideas. And because of that, it means that my work is play and I will I, I never get up and think I don't want to go to work because mm. I find it intrinsically interesting. And I think there's there's some guilt around that, isn't there? There's this sort of sense of 
you know, well, I I do beach cleans with my dad. And if I'm really honest, I do them because they're a lovely way to spend time with my dad. My dad's quite introverted. And if we're both walking along the beach, picking up litter, the conversation flows more easily than if we're sat, you know, across a coffee Mm. table having coffee. And there's this sense of, well, honestly, I'm not doing it for the marine organisms. (laughs) I'm doing it to hang out (laughs) with my dad. And then I feel a bit guilty, but actually it means I go to every single one you know I never think oh I don't want to do the beach clean this month I you know it's something I look forward to and so I think finding those kind of environmental actions that play into your intrinsic motivations you're more likely to stick with them right than if it's something you feel you should do yeah because how many people actually fulfill their own moral compass right so (laughs) very few even people who are very dedicated you know we're not perfect beings Mm. and therefore there's something about what will you always want to do and you know this isn't in some ways I'm not saying that if everyone suddenly untapped their playfulness then climate change is going to disappear into a puff of smoke but I think there is just something about reframing the way we engage with things and whether that is you know if you're a charity for example or a community group and you're trying to engage volunteers you're thinking about, well, actually, how do I understand their motivations? What do they like doing? If you're thinking about how you run initiatives in your company or you're trying to think about how your family considers sustainability, there is just something about finding a combination of the things that you love doing, the things that you're good at doing um, and the things that the world needs some mm. support on. And it's not you know, it's not a magic silver bullet, but I think there's something about understanding your sense of playfulness. You are highly likely to be more engaged. And when you are engaged, you're likely to be a better version of yourself. Yes, yes. And who wouldn't a, want that? Right. That's a Venn diagram <laughs> I use a lot in my work, actually. What you're, what you're good yeah. at, what the world needs and what you love. But there's a Venn diagram that I've seen you use, which I'd love to talk about. And I, I love that question. Yes. What will you always want to do? I think that's such a powerful question because I think there's the things I want to do when I'm on a really high energy kind of good day. But what are the things I want to do when I'm tired or fed up or and I wonder if the answer is at the intersection of a Venn diagram I've seen you use, which is the overlap between choice, wonder and delight. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. I love this diagram and I use it a lot in uh, my training design um, in in quite a lot of my work really Mm. so there's a Venn diagram which is very simple is that it's got three three circles which as you said are choice wonder and delight and it's um, the origin of it I think it's from uh, the International School of Billund which is where Lego is based I'm not sure if there's a link there and it's um, it's a model of playful learning so the idea is that if you can engage people Um, each individual or group if you can engage them at the level of uh, things that they uh, would choose things that fill them with wonder and things that fill them with delight you are much more likely to deeply creatively engage them Uh so choice is really fundamental because that's about agency right so that's actually what would you what would you pick what are you drawn to so constantly trying to give people options so that they can actively make that choice from themselves rather than things being put on top of them um so things like you know opportunities of how people might want to volunteer all that kind of stuff 
Um, wonder is the things that fill you with awe. So what are the things that fill you with curiosity? What makes you personally go, ooh, that's interesting? Mm. You know, um, I'm a total history geek. Like For me, that is total wonder. I'm just weirdly interested in things that are probably really boring. But for me, yep. that's wonder. Seaweed. And delight me. is the things that give you joy. <laughs> yeah, seaweed. So joy, you know, I love jokes. Um, I love uh, running around, all of those kind of things. Um, things like, you know, in an artistic sense, what our individual colour palettes are and our sense of style and things like that. Mm. So if you can find a way of helping people understand what choice, wonder and delight would look like for them and how they mm. would feel in any instance, in any conversation, in any piece of work, you 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 will definitely be able to help spark those eyes. Yeah. Um, so if if in doubt you're struggling to engage anyone at any point, choice, wonder, delight. Yeah, or yourself. Yeah, yes, totally, yeah. Yeah. I want to use this opportunity of a little sort of mini ad break of sorts to tell you about three things that I think you might be interested in. The first is my latest book, Broken, Mending and Repair in a Throwaway World, which came out in May 2023 with Lydian, the publisher of my last four books. And I'm so excited about it. Jay Blades was kind enough to write the foreword and it explores the role of mending and repair in a world where we don't really need to mend anymore. So I'm looking at the social and cultural roles that mending is playing. And those include mending as restoration of function, which you might sort of immediately think of when you think of repair, but also repair as storytelling, repair as activism, repair as healing, and even the regeneration of natural systems as a form of repair. It profiles 28 amazing menders, fixers, hackers, remakers, curators, and artists. And it is the book I am the most proud of so far. And I know I always say that, but I really am. It came out of my research at Oxford, and I think it makes an important and new contribution to the field of writing on repair. So if you want to get your hands on a copy, the link is in the show notes. I would also love to tell you about a free resource I have created called Cultivating Hope in the Face of the Environmental Crisis. And the reason I have made this freely available is because I think it's so important. If we don't believe that change is possible and if we don't believe we have some agency in bringing about that change, we won't act. So Cultivating Hope is a three-part mini course that's all delivered direct to your inbox and it helps you to move through feelings of despair and hopelessness. It helps you to reconnect with nature and that sort of brilliant effect that we know natural spaces have on our well-being. And it helps you to start taking aligned action. So if the relentless news cycle has got you feeling all the doom and gloom, then check that out. Again, the link is in the show notes. And finally, I want to tell you about Making Design Circular, the membership. So if you are a designer, a maker, an artist or a craftsperson and you feel drawn to sustainability, regeneration, environmentalism, whatever you want to call it, this is for you. It is a online membership community of brilliant, gorgeous, imperfect souls who have come together to try to make progress in this area. And it's all built around the idea that you can pour into yourself and take care of yourself. 
and pour into your creative practice and your expression and exploration of creativity and pour into your business and turn all of this or keep all of this as a profitable business and benefit the planet. And we want all of those things in alignment so that pouring into any one of them benefits the others. And that's what the membership is built around. The strapline is rewild your creative practice so that you, your business and the planet can thrive. So if that sounds like something that you need in your life, again, the link is in the show notes. All right. Well, I will hand you back over to this fabulous conversation. Thank you. Now, you've mentioned Lego a couple of times, but your work is not about kids. This is about grown-ups. And I would love to talk to you about why that is so important to you. Why is it important that grown-ups engage with playfulness? Yeah, and I guess what grown-ups is a, an intentional word, word because it's, uh, I guess it's playfully saying that adults did used to be children, um, and we still are, essentially. But it's the basic principle that adults are the decision makers now, and I think there's a lot of emphasis put on on young and younger people as mm-hmm. going to save the future. Well, actually, it's their future, and it's, you know, it's my generation and above um, who, uh, who have created um, the context we're in. So it's really about saying, well, who has agency now in the timeframes that we're working with? Um, and so for me, I'm mainly focused on working with organizations, partly because you can reach more people because they're already, you know, you've already got gatherings, but that fundamentally businesses, um, you know, the market has huge influence over the way that public thinking um, develops and particularly government policy and funding and things. So I'm particularly focused on adults and business for that reason. Mm, There's a there's a poem that you've just made me think of and it nearly I've heard it before. Um, It's a poem called Good Bones by Maggie Smith. And it's about her trying to sort of sell the world to her kids and hide all the hurts from them. And the last lines nearly made me cry when I heard it this weekend. The last lines that this place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. And it was just this sense, as you said, that we are putting so much weight on the shoulders of young Mm. people to sort Mm. out problems that we and our ancestors have created. And I think I think you're right. I think it's time for the (laughs) grown-ups to take some responsibility here, right? It's time time for the grown-ups to grow up a little bit and take some responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, but do that by tapping into their childhood and being playful. That's quite a lovely dichotomy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, So you mentioned Stuart Brown, who is uh, an incredible sort of expert and theorist on play. And he has got these these play archetypes. And this is a tool that you use to help people work out what their unique approach to play is and tap into that intrinsic playfulness. Could you tell us a little bit about those archetypes and how my audience of designers, makers, artists and craftspeople might use them? to to bring some more playfulness into their sustainability work sure so I guess the uh, many of these will be very familiar with people listening I'm expecting so there's eight archetypes and they're from a book simply called play by Stuart Brown it's a good read um, if you're interested Um, and so there's eight eight play personalities which are the joker the explorer uh, the kinesthete the competitor the artist the director the storyteller and the collector. 
And so I use these as an alternative to learning styles. So mm -hmm. I'm a learning practitioner. So we think about learning styles of, you know, whether someone's, um, you know, an audio learner, a visual learner, etc. Rather, I design my sessions based around what people's play personalities are. And so going back to what we were talking about in terms of intrinsic motivation, it's partly about trying to identify which of those are loudest for you and, and helping you understand about why you're drawn to certain things. So I'm so Thank I'm a you. very loud explorer. Um, so, yeah, really loud explorer. Um, I'm really curious. I love going to new places. Um, as a kid, my my best friend from my whole life, my cousin, what we used to do before the age of, you know, the Internet and mobile phones is we used to call each other up on the landline and uh, find a random square in the Wolverhampton A to Z and we'd walk from different sides of the city to find each other in the square. <laughs> Such a geek. Um, but so I'm, a, I'm an explorer, very loud and clear. I'm also a bit of a director because I like organising things and bringing people together. So for me, and I'm a bit of a joker, which I guess is uh, don't necessarily like to be centre of attention, but I like to set people at ease in that way. Mm. Hopefully, you'll probably be able to tell from this conversation already that I'm marrying those together very neatly in the work that I'm doing. And so it's an example about how you can find ways of combining your play personalities in how you spend your time and your energy. So uh, for the people listening, many of you may well have practices that very uh, clearly align, for example, with um you know, the artist or the collector or the storyteller, for example, mm. it may well be a matter of thinking about, well, actually, are there any other overlaps? Do you have a sense of a sense of cheekiness in the way that you tell your stories or what you collect or, you know, um, so just trying to think about what your kind of combinations are and allowing yourself to follow your nose with it. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So I guess a lot of our listeners will be professional artists. I'm a professional storyteller. And so I guess sometimes storytelling doesn't feel like play to me anymore. It feels like work. So is it a question of bringing the playfulness back into storytelling or finding other play archetypes to kind of marry with it? That's a good question. I mean, I guess the first thing is that work can be play. Mm -hmm. And um, actually thinking then about your work of how playful is your work. So going back to the, the definitions about play at the beginning of like pure play, like really, if we're going to be conceptual about it, pure play is something that is outcome less, it's experimental, and you're just doing it because you want to and you're drawn to it. So I guess there's something about in your workspace, because I'm sure you, you know, you like it, bringing back some more of that experimental stuff where you don't, you're not constantly delivering against outcomes. Mm. And, you know, it's not in the same sector as you, but I often see this in the, in the tech sector, it's quite common for organizations to have things like hackathons or learning days where teams get half a day, a week or a fortnight to just make something that they're interested in but without any expectation. Mm. And so I think there's just something about, you know, of course we live in the world that we do. So you've still got to go to work and you've still got to do X, Y, Z, but trying to intentionally create spaces for you to just play with whatever you want to play. So whether that's a four day week for you or it's, um, you know, separate creative projects, it's just about making sure that you are committed to your own experimentation. 
Mm. Yeah, and I think that's so important. And I think I particularly struggle with, I struggle with things that feel self-indulgent. And Mm. I think in a very kind of capitalist, productive society, anything that feels playful (laughs) and anything that doesn't have an outcome, I really struggle with. Have you got any advice of, of kind of how to overcome that? that resistance to play I guess I very much think about playfulness as a skill in the same way that we would think of any other skill so like confidence you know resilience creativity any 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 other attribute you can think of so I think you can kind of learn to be playful in Mm. the way that you can with anything else because even if you know my business is all about play I wouldn't say I'm extremely playful because for me it's still it's still a process Mm. Um, I don't particularly consider myself to be creative which other people might disagree with but I I don't really and I actually have a whole load of creative blocks Um, uh, but I think that one of the best questions anybody ever asked me I think at some point last year when I was starting to get stressed about um, aspects of developing my work and somebody said to me how playful are you being right now and it was like <laughs> um, you know actually just really challenged me um, and so that's a, a question that I often say to myself if I'm, I'm feeling a bit disengaged or a bit a bit fed up or tired is actually what what could make this more playful and mm. actually that there's something about the word for me that just crystallizes the whole point of yeah. how we how we live and operate in a in a slightly different way um so I'd say take it easy on yourself and just 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 do something small and don't suddenly expect yourself to become some kind of court jester in a silly hat <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really interesting because I have a really kind of visceral negative reaction to the joker archetype I'm just like yeah. nope nope <laughs> not me <laughs> yeah, yeah well fair enough but yeah. Um, yeah, some of the others, and I think it's really interesting to look at those different types of play because, you know, something like collecting had never mm. really occurred to me as a as a type of play, but kind of suits my nerdy curiosity. Um, and I also think it goes back to, right back to what we were saying at the beginning. I can remember being on a on a call of some sort and I described myself as not somebody who was playful. And the person leading the group said, I'm sorry, I disagree. You've been playful several times today. Mm. And I sort of battered it off and said, no, I was being self-deprecating. But I realized afterwards that I felt safe in that space. And that's why I was able to be playful. And it was a real kind of eye-opening moment that I am actually quite a playful person, but only in spaces where I feel safe. And so I guess it's also about creating the space, the kind of spaciousness and the sense of safety within your work practice. Yeah, and that's the the psychological safety point again, isn't Mm. it? If you don't feel safe, it's probably not play. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a risk thing if if you're someone who likes, you know, bungee jumping or something, then that's (laughs) slightly different. But, you know, ultimately, if you don't feel, you know, if you don't feel safe, it's probably not going to be fun. Um, And, yeah, so it's all going to be completely distinctive. But the collector archetype, you know, it's... There's plenty of kids and plenty of adults who like sitting uh, quietly and, you know, finding patterns or rhythms or looking at systems of things and the jigsaw people and the, mm. you know, people with a, a a much more scientific brain than me. Um, 
you know, there's plenty of artists who do beautiful um, curating work, and that is play. It's just an adult form of play. Mm, I think that's really interesting. I think it's about working out what play means to you rather than feeling that you've got to fit into somebody else's understanding of of playful yeah yeah fantastic so I feel like we've covered a lot of this in a very broad nuanced and complex way but if there was one thing that you could advise my listeners to go away and do today to bring a bit more playfulness into their environmentalism efforts what would it be and then we're going to go on to a quick fire round so this is the last question before we go quick fire I would very simply just say, follow your nose and don't overthink it. I love that. Follow your nose. Awesome. Right. Quick fire. Best book you have read or listened to lately? Uh, Not play related, but The Dangers of Smoking in Bed by Mariana Enriquez is a fantastic very dark weirdly comedic uh, set of novellas that I highly recommend amazing I've never even heard of that love it yeah Um, favorite podcast uh you're dead to me which is comedians plus history which is very up my street and there's also (laughs) really great episode on play do want to listen to play um by the Huberman labs that's really good cool I will pop a link to that in the show notes finish this sentence circularity is Ooh, um never ending and therefore bountiful oh i like that <laughs> this question generates the most juicy I bet, answers yes. I, <laughs> I love it one thing you wish sustainable designer makers and craftspeople knew um i think that helping people to understand how to make things themselves is extremely important so trying to find ways of sharing the creativity I guess Mm. but then I'm a learning designer so I'm gonna say that aren't I (laughs) (laughs) no but I think it's so interesting and one of the things I talk about a lot is um I've just written a book about repair and this idea that yes one individual person mending things is probably isn't going to make a huge difference in the grand scheme of things but it does help them to tap into their personal agency and that Mm. is incredibly powerful um and so yeah I think sharing those making and mending skills is incredibly powerful um and the final question best or worst life or business advice you've ever been given I'd say it was both the best and the worst which was hustle Uh, so my advice is only hustle if you if you like hustling but that it is possible to live your life and develop a business in your own distinctive way it doesn't have to be um a replica because otherwise all you're going to end up doing is recreating uh some of the same patterns and norms that got us into this mess in the first place so to the introverts and the slower paced people and the people doing slightly weird things um, I think there is a place for you too. Yes, louder for them, those at the back. <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lucy. That's been such a fantastic conversation and really helped me to 
kind of understand the role of play in my own framework so thank you yeah well you are most welcome um it's always interesting to think about it but it's just there isn't that much of a distinction of how we play in different contexts so you know for people listening it doesn't matter what your discipline is or your area of work and the, the same questions will relate in terms of how you play and how that fits into your life and your work mm, amazing thank you oh thank you so much for listening to this episode of making design circular with katie tregidden it is so lovely to know that there are people out there tuning into these conversations if you found that interesting i would love to connect with you on instagram i am on katietregidden.one and if you're a designer maker artist or craftsperson who's interested in sustainability and environmentalism then please also follow making design circular on at making underscore design underscore circular underscore and both of those are in the show notes you can also follow my email newsletter there i would be super grateful if you're listening to this on an iphone or ipad or other apple device if you could leave us a review on apple podcast i think that's the only podcast platform that takes reviews but it's incredibly helpful to help people find us and make sure that more and more people are finding this message. So if you could take a couple of moments just to leave a review there, that would be amazing. I would also like to say a quick thank you to the incredible Kirsty Spain, who produces and edits this podcast and keeps me on track so that these episodes actually make it into your ears. So thank you very much, Kirsty. 